This week on Voice Over Voices, we discuss Bluey, sound design, home studios, microphones, sound effects, natural reads, how to impress a director, tortoises, Banjo Patterson, and more Bluey, because we love Bluey. No. Hello and welcome to VoiceOver Voices, the podcast where we delve into the wordy world of voiceovers. Each episode, you'll meet a professional voice artist, find out who they are and how they got into this work, and listen while we run through some slightly ridiculous script games, which are based on the kind of jobs we tackle on any given day in the studio. I'm Cathy Ogden, and I'm a voice artist, singer, writer, and podcaster. A voice artist needs to be able to sight-read scripts, take direction, interpret the client's brief, create characters, moderate their vocal tone, flip from character to character, and somehow manage to do all this within a tight time limit. It's an intensely focused kind of job, and people come into it from all sorts of different backgrounds. And what's more, nobody really knows who we are. We're largely invisible to all but our agents, clients, and each other. Well, I'm changing all that, so on with the show. My guest this week on VoiceOver Voices is voice artist and sound designer Dan Brum. Dan started his career as a sound engineer, spending thousands of hours cutting retail commercials at a post house in Brisbane. Then, in Dan's words, armed with a thick North Queensland accent and a total lack of acting experience, he crossed over to the other side of the glass and became a voiceover. For the past 14 years, Dan has voiced commercials in Australia for clients such as Subway, McDonald's, the Australian government and Isuzu. And what's more, Dan is the voice of Uncle Stripe in our much-loved award-winning animated series Bluey, where he is also the sound designer. Plus, he's also a dad to three kids for real life. I can't wait to hear more about the world of Bluey, sound design, voiceovering and beyond. So... Welcome to VoiceOver Voices, Dan Brum. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. Thank you for, for making time. I really appreciate it. I know with with three kids and a thriving voiceover career and being a sound designer, all of those things, good Lord. Yeah, it's a pretty hectic schedule with Bluey, particularly at the moment. It's uh, it's a lot of episodes and um, not a whole lot of time to do them in, so it's certainly... Um, yeah, it keeps you busy and what's left over is then kind of kids and life and <laughs> all those things. And uh, it's good to be busy though, right? Like, it's, oh, it's good. Absolutely. Being busy rocks. So let me go back to to before Blue and before everything. You, you started out as a sound engineer, is that right? Yeah. So originally I started in radio. Um at Nova 106.9 here in Brisbane, it just opened up and I was kind of looking to find something audio related. And I think I just sent my letter at the right time and it landed on um, the imaging guy, Ben Ryan, just landed on his desk at the right time. And he, he sort of liked the cut of my jib or whatever. And he got me in and sort of trained me in how to make radio ads and imaging and sort of how to use Pro Tools as well. And uh, you know, I owe a lot to those that early year just kind of working under this. He's kind of like one of the greats in the industry, Ben Ryan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I left there and I went to Cutting Edge post production. 
and yeah, just basically cut retail ads and you know, it's um it's fun. It's definitely a cool world to work in. Um it's not always the most exciting sound design in the world, but mm-hmm. it really sort of trains you to be quick and efficient in Pro Tools. And um I think really kind of helped me get into voiceovers as well, actually. Um, well, that makes sense because you would hone your ear for what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. Really yeah. quickly, I would imagine. Yeah. Like, as you said, well, as I said in the intro, I guess, um, I didn't have any acting experience. And uh, so becoming a voiceover was a, a strange decision, not having any acting experience. But I think just cutting these thousands of hours of, um, of retail ads, which were voiced by like the greats, like um, Paul Davies and Mike Goldman and Todd mm-hmm. Levi, who are just masters of the craft. It's kind of like I had, I knew how to read an ad because I've just heard it done so many times. So that box was kind of ticked for me in that I just, I sort of knew how it was meant to be done. Yeah. It was just a matter of figuring out how I was going to make it sound like these very talented voiceover artists. But I think that really kind of helped me. And then I knew the studio etiquette as well. I knew kind of what the engineer wanted and I knew what um, sort of how it worked. And I, I think that's really quite helpful because it's- um, Massively. It's pretty, like you to remember, it's pretty nerve wracking when you first start appearing in booths and people have paid you a fair <laughs> bit of money to hire you and they expect you to be good. And it's like, whew, it's, it's a fair bit of pressure at the start. It is. Yeah, it's really interesting. A lot of people do come into voiceover work from radio in, in one way, yeah. shape or other. And also there is a lot to be said for just being really, really curious about how everything works and also just comfortable in the studio environment. And yeah. so so were you, when you were first sort of changing, can I just say an, another thing actually? Sorry, my brain just goes flitting to various different things <laughs> at the same good. time. But I was just going to say, your voice is amazing though. It's it's really lovely. It's got this beautiful bottom end. And yeah, I can see yeah. why people would, would go, hey, you really should be on the other side of the, <laughs> the glass there, Yeah, Dan. look, it's one of those things. It's like literally all my life people would meet you and say like, oh, you've got such a lovely voice. And when you'd never considered it an acting profession or anything like that, it's it's kind of weird and you don't know what to, to do with it. And it's just my voice that I hear every day. So you don't know really that it's low. Like I didn't even really know I had a deep voice until I started doing this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I was, you know, I was just cutting ads and um, right, I'd quit my job at Cutting Edge. And just before I left, um, one of the big directors here and DOPs here, Brendan Williams, um, he popped his head in the studio and was like, hey, Brummy, I've got an ad. I want you to chuck a guide voice on, buddy. You'd be good for it. <sighs> Um, and that was the first I ever did. Like I went in and just kind of, it was this really awesome ad for um, the New South Wales Rural Fire Department. And it was this really emotive ad. And what was the copy? It was like, what would it take for you to fight? Would you fight to protect your family? And that kind of like really Whoa. deep gravel voice kind of thing. And I, I did a guide and honestly didn't think anything of it. Uh, but then the ad kind of blew up and I was getting a couple of pats on the back from people. And it sort of made me think, well, maybe I can you know, give this a go. Yeah, I think, so I think if you know how to be authentic and if you know how to take direction, you know, you've, that's, that's another two things that, that, that yeah. will really help you be a voice artist. Yeah, I mean, I came absolutely. from a singing background, so I didn't have, you know, I did acting and stuff at school, but I wasn't, I wasn't a trained actor. Yeah. And for me, it was being a session singer 
led me into being a voice actor because I was already in the studio and I, like you said, I understood studio etiquette and yeah, mic technique and all that stuff. In fact, mic technique was such a massive thing of being a session singer. Yeah, because it's it's probably even more volume increases and and decreases and all that within even one line when you're singing something and and knowing how to just pull back and and totally off mic when you when you're popping your peas and <laughs> yeah I mean and creative choices as well like going way off mic like this when you're sound, singing a louder passage because you want it to sort of sound less present or coming in close for the the you know the, the presence boost you get yeah. um, and then you would have had as well you just would have had such a strong kind of call from singing which would have helped you have this rich, lovely voiceover voice. Yeah, that having breath control just really helps. Yeah. It's, um, it's- and see, I had none of that when I started. Like, I'd never acted before. I'd never really tried to do this before. And um, I think people were kind of using me because for that reason, like, I, I just sounded quite every day and very casual. And I mm-hmm. think the trend, which was sort of coming slightly to an end, was in ads back, this is like 14 years ago, was sort of very voiceovery voices. Yeah. And I think that the creatives were trying to try something new. And so I suddenly land and I, I don't sound like a voiceover. And it's funny, like I've, I've listened back to some of the early reads and I just sounded so rough and raw <laughs> and really thick, my North Queensland accent. And then, you know, in 14 years, like I've done so many ads and I've, I've learned to control my voice more and you know, you do a lot of radio stuff, which might be more hard sell or more sort of radio voice kind of thing. And that just mm-hmm. strengthens your voice and you kind of learn to control things and you sort of lose that that roughness. And it's like 14 years of training and experience. I'm trying to get back to that point where I was before I had any training or experience. Like I want to be able to do those really just natural reads, but you've you've got to almost unlearn everything you've learned to go back to just sounding normal rather than kind of putting too much bass in it and sounding too announcery or acting it too much. It's funny, um, isn't it? Yeah, it kind of goes against what you, you know, yeah, I yeah. totally get you. When I started out, I was the girl who did the natural reads as well. But very, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, totally. <laughs> but very often, you know, you'll be working with someone, they say, we just want you to sound really, really natural. And so you're like, la da 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 whatever, you know, like supernatural. Yeah. And then, and they're like, yeah, but, yeah, but happier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Like I've got quite a, a, a fairly monotone voice when I'm talking normally and, yeah, it does just doesn't – people like the idea of a natural talking me, but it doesn't necessarily translate to um, to TV or radio too well. You've got to – you do have to inject that sort of – that energy a little bit to it. You do. I was um, I was talking to Rick Herbert about this, who I interviewed on a previous episode, okay. and I, I was just asking him the other day. I said, "What? So, just if you could just sum up what what is it that people are looking for in a commercial read?" And he said, "Joy." And I went, "Oh, that makes so much sense." Yeah, right. That's a that's a good way of looking at it. It really is. I mean, it really is because I was I was confused. I'd I'd been asked to do a an ad for a radio station, and and it was on a really serious subject. And when I started reading it, the producer was like, "No, no, 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 like, no, you're like, <laughs> where's your energy?" And I went, "Well, it's a really serious subject." Yeah. And he said, "No, no, 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 no. You, you've still got to inject life into this." And and what I think he meant was joy. Like, it's weird, isn't it? But uh, yeah, yeah. 
It's a real a sincerity as well. Like, of course, it's, yes. It's that, yeah. Uh, something, a product you're not familiar with at all or have no affiliation with of just kind of making it sound believable and sincere. And yeah, joy comes into it, you know, if, if it's, if that's sort of the call in the ad, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. It just sort of, anyway, I get, I, I get a lot of work that is quite serious and I think it's probably the sound of my, I don't know why it just is. I, I think <laughs> serious breeds more serious. And um, yeah, well, I mean, that's what do you get typecast kind of thing? Like they hear you on a serious ad. So they're like, Oh, that's my, my serious ad person. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the sound design side of things, was that, how did that come about? Yeah, I get asked this a bit and I, I don't know the, the proper answer. I think like I played guitar, I, well, I play guitar. So I was always kind of interested in recording music and stuff like that. Never on a super technical level. I just, I'm more like the performing rather than the recording. Uh, and then my brother, Joe, who is the creator of Bluey, he was an animator and he would make these just incredible films. Uh, and I sort of started doing the sounds for his films because his film needed sound. And that kind of got me interested. I realized I, I like the audio world and I like putting sounds on things and just kind of, you know, creating this audio world for images. It's not necessarily something, I suppose I did kind of in, intentionally enter the field. Um, I look back now, it all just seemed to fall into places, it fall mm. into, into place. But that belies the fact, I remember the, the struggles at the start, like it's a hard industry to get into. So it's it's probably a bit unfair to say that it all fell into place. It, it took a lot of putting yourself there and really knocking on a lot of doors and things like that. But yeah, I mean, sort of, that's probably 20 years I've been doing that now. And I still really get a bit of a buzz out of getting this, particularly with animation, you get a silent picture and you choose how you want it to sound and to feel and the kind of emotions you're trying to convey, whether you're trying to make people laugh or kind of scare them a little bit by the volume of something. Uh, it's Yeah, it's really fun. I, I really like it. I think as a kid, I really liked those old books. I used to have this great Transformers book, um, and it was one of the audio books, one of the early ones where you'd sit there with headphones and had the, you know, when you hear this sound, turn the page. And I really liked hearing the narrator, but then hearing some of the sound design that to me kind of brings the pictures to life. And uh, it's one of my favorite things is like podcasts that are sound design podcasts where you kind of get taken on a journey purely through the sound because you your imagination really kicks in and you visualize in your head what the places look like based on these um based on these sounds can you off the top of your head recommend one of those podcasts so probably the the best one i listen to these days is 20000 hertz 20, uh, it's not necessarily hertz. a narrative one but um yep. they always explain a fairly interesting topic that is sound related and they've okay. got really incredible sound design that they have to these elements so that's quite a yeah nice one to listen to Good point, though. I've got to I think I've got to try and uncover some more. Yeah, it just sounds. I'm so fascinated by this, and I I have always been fascinated by it as well. And I think, I think I even you know as a kid, I remember watching a behind the scenes documentary on how sounds were made for film and and animation, mm. and just watching these guys, you know, making making storm sounds and using yeah. things and all that yep. stuff. It just looks so fantastic and such an interesting thing to do. And you really, I would imagine you have to, you have to have a, a very strong imagination and to, to go, wait, that's the sound I need. How am I going to get it? And Yeah, absolutely. 
A lot of it looks like play, actually. I mean, it just looks so much fun. Yeah, well, they're the Foley artists. Um, right. I think Jack Foley was the original sort of mastermind of it all. So they, they call that whole art creating Foley. Okay. And yeah, it looks awesome. Like these guys have just got these massive studios just filled with every kind of prop you could ever need that they manipulate in various ways. Um, but really worth investigating in this field is Ben Burt, who's the Star Wars sound designer. Ah, okay. And I mean- Oh, God, you listen to that film having read how he got some of these sounds and it's just the most creative sound design you've ever heard. Oh, my gosh. Um, that's like marrying two of my favourite things because I am such a Star Wars fan. Yeah, just honestly. Like, <laughs> look up some of his videos. Like the, like that film was – it was a minor film. Like it wasn't – they didn't know it was going to be as big as it was and he got on board and created this universe and – like the, the laser blast shots, he'd got an iron bar, went out to a bridge that had those big, long suspension beams, and you hit it with the bar, and it creates that kind of metal slinky kind of sound. Um, and, you know, like even I think Darth Vader's mask, he went to an aquarium and found a big diving breathing tube and kind of put his mic in the middle of it and breathed through it. So not only do you get the, the you know, the acting the of the breath of Darth yeah. Vader, it's kind of got this... <laughs> really weird kind of unnatural filter through it because it's recorded through a little plastic kind of hose um, and countless other stories like just the work he did on that show it's just groundbreaking and particularly then when you didn't have pro tools and you didn't have sound effects libraries as vast as you have now so it's kind of like he had to create this world and now as a sound designer you if you're doing a sci-fi thing you're like well a laser sounds like this yeah you know he's kind of established almost the genre of what these things sound like so do you um do you use sound effects libraries or do you tend to make the sounds yourself for for bluey yeah a bit of both um i've got you know a very vast sound effects library uh and i definitely use those but as much as possible i i try and record stuff myself because it gives the show originality to begin with. And more often than not, um, it just ends up fitting better with this show. Like, you know, this show is warm and it's yeah. organic and it's meant to be lovely and just nice sounding. And the kids are often playing, all their toys are wooden. Like they don't have plastic toys. They've got wooden toys. So yeah. it's very hard to find a pre-recorded sound of someone playing with wooden toys that matches the actions on screen. So, you know, I've got a whole, in my studio here, I've got a whole collection of wooden toys, which I've pinched off my kids, don't tell them. <laughs> um, and, you know, you manipulate them, you drop them on the ground or you, you clank them together or um, just like various things. And I'll, I'll often take my microphone and I'll, I'll go off around Brisbane and, you know, like playgrounds, for example, there's lots of episodes set at playgrounds. And the thing is, you can't fake the sound of playing at a playground because you've got yeah, kids watching true. and parents watching. And you spend a lot of hours at a playground and you know what a monkey bar sounds like and you know yeah. what a slide sounds like and you you know the squeak of the chains of pushing a kid on a swing. So I go to playgrounds and I record all those things um, and often I'll be pushing one of my kids on it so you get the weight and you record it. And, um, then that, when you edit that in, usually that's the main going to be the main sound if not the only sound and hopefully it just adds a real sincerity so that people watching the show you know, this stylized show, which is about dogs and it's a artistic impression of Brisbane. Hopefully I'm trying to make it sound as kind of sincere and genuine as possible so that, 
you know, you can suspend your disbelief that you're watching dogs in an animated background. <laughs> As somebody who has just binged watched <laughs> many, many episodes of this, Yeah, right. <laughs> I can tell you, you're doing a great job there, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Look, and like you said before, in the end, it's, it's, it is really fun. Like it's, I mean, amazing to work on a show that's as popular as this. Like that's, that's a real privilege to be doing that. Can oh. put a lot of pressure on because you know how many people are watching and stuff. But what I do is it's, it's odd and it's fun and it's weird. And like the amount of times I've been just doing something weird out in public to record a sound, people <laughs> kind of watch you and go, <laughs> what, what's this guy doing? Um, <laughs> I, was, I was at a, a dam down the road where, from where I live and I had to record the sound of splashing in the water. So I'm kind of there just kicking and splashing and everyone's having picnics there just watching this crazy guy. Um, no one ever asks questions because <laughs> they might think I'm maybe unhinged or something. <laughs> oh, funny. Right. Well, speaking of unhinged... Um, <laughs> <laughs> So you play Uncle Stripe in yes. Bluey, and he's not unhinged. That was not the segue I was looking well. for. Wow, wow. No, the segue was actually into Two in a Booth. Where yeah, right. <laughs> where yeah. That is actually part of part of this this little story about two tortoises. Yes. So uh, have you had a quick look at the script? I had a quick look, yeah. Okay. Two tortoises. One has just arrived at this other tortoise's right. home. Um, would you like to play the one that's called U at the moment or the one that's called C at the moment? Yeah, I'll go with you. Okay, cool. Right then. So is there any particular uh, voice that you would – are you just going to be like straight ahead? Uh, let's see what comes out. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not much of a character voice person, but yeah, I'll, yeah let's give it a go. Eh? I'm thinking – okay, so you – you is not a particularly old tortoise, but he is a more experienced tortoise than right. C. So I might, I think I'm going to be a bit young and kind of, I'm a little bit more naive, I think, than, than <laughs> Yeah, you. awesome. Okay. So. <laughs> Sounds good. It's one thing writing a script and then there's a whole other thing <laughs> deciding what character you're going to be. God. Okay, here we go. Let's um, give it a crack, eh? Let's give it a whirl, see what happens. All right. Whoa, where'd you come from? I'm new here. Uh, I think I came from a pet shop. All right. Well, I wasn't expecting company. I wasn't either. It just kind of happened. One minute I was in the shop, the next I was in a box, and now I'm here. All right. Well, uh, welcome. I could really do with a new friend. <sighs> Thank you. So what's your name? Mm, apparently it's Cheetah. <laughs> Oh, irony. I get it. They named you after the fastest animal because we tortoises are one of the slowest. No. Wait, wait, really? Oh, that makes me so happy. Why? I thought it was because I'd done something wrong and they were implying I was a cheat. Oh, have you done something wrong? I don't think so. Nope, Not nothing I can think of. Well, then, Cheetah, it's definitely the irony thing. I ought to know. Why? What do they call you? <sighs> Usain, as in Bolt. He's a very fast human. So, not Usain, as in 
you are mentally stable. No, I don't think so, but I like it. Are you mentally stable? Well, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty even-tempered kind of tortoise. Then I think we'll get on famously, Usain. Couldn't agree more, Cheetah. Race you to the food bowl. Sure. See you in an hour or so. And that's the most ridiculous thing I've done today. Yeah, go for it. Now you need to. <laughs> now you need to read the tag, which I forgot oh, yeah. to tell you about. Okay, here we go. <laughs> need to find a friend for your family pet? Does your ironically named amphibian need an amigo? Come to Pet Palace for the perfect playmate. We have a full array of amicable animals. We have a full array of amicable animals just waiting to make friends with your pampered pet. Bored budgie? Forlorn fish? Tragic terrapan? Come to Pet Palace. It's paradise for pets. <laughs> Beautifully done, Dad. <laughs> little edit on the fly there. <laughs> Take two. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I got a lot into a lot of trouble for a while there. When I sort of started recording from home a lot and recording myself, if you messed a line up, you just went and did it again straight away. And then when I'm editing it, it's all fine. Yeah, same. I did that for ages, for months at a time. And then you go back into a booth and you can't read a script from start to finish until like you realise oh, you can't just stop and redo it again because that kind of <laughs> really oh, annoys everyone else, the- you know. Yeah, well, yeah, for whoever's editing. Yeah. But you do, you get into your own, oh, I've already developed some fabulously bad habits from <laughs> working <laughs> yeah. from home, including Not wearing that. pants, for example. <laughs> I make that mistake twice. <laughs> I try to remember to put them on before I leave the house. Which, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that helps. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, right. Okay. So coming back to, to Bluey. So you play Uncle Stripe. Yes. Like, describe... I'm. I'm just. It just occurred to me that we are talking about this this amazing show. That there may be people who are listening to this that actually don't even know Bluey. So let's yeah. let's just describe it and then tell me about your character if you don't mind. Yeah. Okay. So Bluey is an animated um, kids show that is set in sort of kind of Brisbane or Australia at least, and it's a world of dogs, uh, different breeds of dogs, and the the healers, the, the main characters, they're a family of blue healers. So you've got Dad, uh, Bandit and Chili, the mum and dad, and then their two daughters, uh, Bluey and Bingo. And it's all about, the, the whole sort of philosophy of the show is about imaginative play in kids and how important it is to play these great games as kids. And yeah, it's now distributed, I think, by Disney around the world mm-hmm. and um, has certainly launched fairly astronomically in popularity, which has um, been quite a wild ride to watch. I think it's extraordinary. I, I just the whole play side of things that, I mean, you know, I mean, I grew up watching television and stuff. That was it. That was my only yeah. form of, of losing myself and sitting yeah. there watching television with chocolate biscuits and whatever but the rest of the time and that was just from dinner time onwards that would be yeah so I was out there making paint out of dirt and (laughs) doing drawings on rocks and doing just playing with my friends and making little stick houses and things like that yeah it's it's only now that Bluey is reminding people how important that is yeah that I think that suddenly it's it's just changed parenting. It's extraordinary. It really is. I mean, you must get some incredible feedback from people. I would imagine. 
Oh, yeah, you do. Um, I mean, so many people you read say that it, it's really encouraged them and taught them how to be better parents and and there's different ways of play. Like you don't have to play like Bandit, who's such a almost perfect dad kind of thing, the games <laughs> he plays. Yeah, like it's good to see this on TV. Um, originally we did the pilot episode, which was um, became The Weekend in Series 1, mm-hmm. and uh, we did that before the show was picked up, obviously, it was the pilot. And there was a game in it called Magical Statues where basically the dad buys a statue from a shop, which is one of his kids, Immobile, oh. and um, he puts it down in his garden and he says, oh, I'm glad this isn't a magic statue, and he turns around and, of course, the kid has run away and it's hilarious for him, and then he chases them around the house. Right. And so that was in the pile and we were kind of, we made it and, you know, before the show got picked up, my kids watched it and loved that game. And so I was always having to play magical statues. Mm-hmm. And if I was at a park with them and we we're playing it, every kid in the park would just gravitate towards you and see this awesome game and they'd want me to play it with them. Um, uh. Because like, that's, that's why this show is so great, I think, because kids love these games, these yeah. sort of you know, I think my brother Joe must have come up with that game sort of out of necessity to fill some time of parenting, which you've got a lot of time to fill sometimes. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's goofy and it's sort of winning over the dad a little bit. So the kids just love it. And I think that's why this show is popular because it just shows these really great games that kids play and that parents play with the kids and kids play with themselves. And I don't think there's really anything like that on TV and, and so you know, parents are getting great, great story ideas to play yeah. and kids are watching this lovely world as well and they're getting their own ideas. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that's one of the reasons the show might be quite successful. I think so. I think it is. It's so different. It's nothing like I've ever seen before. And to have a show like that that's actually encouraging people to, to I mean, even, the you know, getting out in the natural world and being fascinated by the, the frogs and, the, and all the things like that. And it's yeah. just it's just reminding people of all these things that we kind of, we've forgotten in some, yeah. in some ways because we've got so many screens in our world and yep. so many distractions. and Yeah. Um, oh. I took my kids down to a, a park the other day and first time they'd been there and they kind of, there was a creek there and they wandered down to the creek and they they just reverted to like that old school like, walking through the water and climbing over this bridge and then just chucking boulders into the creek. And it's like, oh, this is so great. I, I felt guilty for not taking him to places like that too much because, yeah, in, the, in Cairns growing up, me and my two brothers, Joe and Adam, like that's we just lived in creeks and we lived doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah, we just, whatever, you know, we just don't do it too much these days. But it's good to see that it's still there in the next generation. Like it's still just as fun as it used to be. It's funny the the bluey effect because I live in near the beach in Sydney and every second dog is called Chili or Bluey now. <laughs> yeah, right. Just gotta is say, that right? that's great. <laughs> that's so cool. And it's almost illegal not to have a dog if you live around the northern beaches. Like everybody has a dog. <laughs> and also, um, <laughs> I was watching some kids at Shelley Beach the other day, and they were chasing bush turkeys, which I was like, oh come on, be kind, be kind. But they're going bin chickens. Bin chickens. Yeah. And I knew that was from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, that's the thing. Like in quite a short so amount sweet. of time, it's it's just part of the the cultural heritage of Australia now. Like it's just in the lingo now. It's yeah. it's like it's a thing that just always was bluey. Yeah. Um, which yeah, it's like yeah, it's been amazing to just see. Like I, I think when we started making it, like 
I remember thinking, this is this. I think this is going to be a good show. You know, it's funny, but you kind of had no idea it was going to just launch as much as it did launch. I think I read it's the number one trending show on Disney Plus in America. There you go. Um, yeah, and that's go. that's a that's a bit of a spin out. It's wonderful, and I'm so proud of you guys for doing this. I mean, it's just so <laughs> lovely. I mean, it really, really is. Please give Joe a big pat on the back. And all the team, oh, my God. So hang on. Tell me about yeah. the team because you got – there's like about – I was reading there's about 50 of you. Yeah, of. there's um, – Ludo – so Ludo are in Fortitude Valley in the in Brisbane, their office there, and I don't even know that there might be about 40 or 50 animators and then – the sort of this the the staff around them so you know producers exec producers editors and then obviously uh, probably 50 or 60 people and then Joff the composer's got about well, I don't know how many people he sometimes gets you know people to play various instruments on albums and sometimes he has his composer friends compose certain episodes he by and large does the bulk of the music which is just such a backbone of the episodes. Oh, it's stunning. Um, yeah, I mean. And it's across all sorts of genres and everything. There was one yeah. episode that I was, I should have made a note of it actually, but there was this beautiful kind of jazzy piece that came, that just went through it and then out through the credits at the end and I was like, oh, my God, this is stunning. <laughs> yeah, might <laughs> have been barbecue classical. actually. It might have been barbecue. Yeah. It was barbecue. There yeah, you go. That's, yeah, that rings a bell. Yeah, yeah. no, and like every episode it's a whole different score. Like he doesn't yeah. reuse elements. Um, and it just it adds so much life to the episodes, and then you know you get the soundtrack, and it's a kids show, but the songs just stand on their own. And yeah, you know it's it was like the number one album in Australia for a while there, um, and my kids love it. They just play it over and over again and um, dance to it, and yeah, it's, yeah, it's such an important <laughs> part of the show. Well, I guess it would it would sort of bring back memories of of the episode that it was in. But plus, the music itself is just so stunning. It's just yeah, absolutely yeah, it is. It's, yeah, it's it's so well uh, well composed, and it's always just so fun. There's an episode octopus you should watch actually, and the music in that it's one of my favourites. It's just it's so silly and it's so funny, and it just adds so much energy to this episode. It's one of my favourite parts of the sound design process is kind of I'm working on just the sound effects and the voice for a, for a long time, for weeks, mm-hmm. and then I get the music on a Wednesday of the week and kind of start the mix and it's like suddenly you hear the episode with the music in it and it just, it just takes on – it just rises up a whole new level of, uh, of impact and emotion and meaning and, um, yeah, it's always fun to hear it for the first time. Ah, oh, wow. So each episode – must take forever to make. I'd hate to think. How does it? How does it all work? Yeah, I don't know much about the behind the scenes, but I think it's almost four weeks solid animating per episode for the team. Mm-hmm. Um, there's four teams of animators, but I think they animate it for about four weeks, and then there's you know visual effects. But it's before that it's gone through animatics and and editing to get it to the point where it's all well timed. Uh, and then Joff's working on the music. I don't know how long he takes, but then I get five days per episode to work on the sound design and then the mix. Um, and often I've started well before then, sourcing sounds and kind of putting sounds in place and things like that. Um, so, like, it's a it's a pretty tightly oiled ship in, in we're in the third season now, so it's 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 still slightly chaotic at times, as mm. you'd expect, a show as big as this kind of thing. Yeah. But, um, you know, they're, they're tight deadlines and it's, it's 52 episodes per season, which is... Um, one week per episode, like when you think about that, that's that's a fairly hectic. Uh, 
That's a hectic amount of work. (laughs) But in the end, like, it's such a great show that it's like, it's just, mostly it's just lots of fun to work on. Yeah. Why wouldn't it be? I mean, you're making something that's just uplifting for everybody. and yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I think that's what it is. I think the first season was really full on making it before it got released. Like, it was so much work involved and you know joe was kind of really wanted this to be the way he wanted it to be for a lot of good reasons um so it was a lot of work but then once the show got released and you started seeing how popular it was and how much it meant to people it kind of like it just changed things a bit and you suddenly like yeah it was it's this really lovely experience working and still is this lovely experience working on the show that is just enriching people's lives and like it seems funny talking about a television show in that regard, but it it does. It it just it has so much emotion to it and so much heart and yeah. You know, parents of young kids, kind of like I am. It's like you're doing all these things and you're seeing yourself on screen, and I I think it sort of validates your experience because you're like you're playing all these games behind closed doors for just hours and hours a day, and you're mm. up early and you're to bed late. It's like your story has been put on screen and you you feel like, oh, I'm not the only one. Like, we're, we're all kind of doing this. Yeah. I remember, like, I'm a stepmom to two grown-ups now, but when they were little, I remember playing torpedoes with them in the pool, like holding one on either side. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah. and, and that was our favourite holiday thing when we were, you know. Somewhere. Yeah, and, um, classic stuff. And I saw that and I was like, oh. I thought I, I thought I was the one that came up with that game, but no. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sweet. Yeah. I, as as you know, I interviewed Melanie Zanetti. Yeah. For the last episode, and she plays the mum Chili. Yeah. And she was saying exactly this. She just said it's just so lovely to be working on something that is is actually making a difference in the world. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. And it's specifically written to make adults laugh as well as kids. Yeah. Because adults watch these shows with their kids. Yeah. And so, you know, parents get, I think, even more enjoyment out of it because there's so many nods to how hard it is to be a parent or playing the same games over and over. There's, you know, there's, oh. there's sort of nods <laughs> to those kind of things. Uh, it's wonderful. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because I think in, in advertising, you know, doing commercial reads and everything, we have to represent all sorts of different companies and organizations and products and whatever. Yeah. And I always love it when I'm in the studio doing something that I know is for the benefit of the world, you know, like it's a an announcement about something that's helping the government tell yeah. people to do the right thing or whatever, you know, not yeah. do the right thing. Or it's a, it's for a charity. So, and I kind, of, I kind of walk out of the studio going, huh. I've made a difference today. <laughs> That's right, totally. <laughs> it's really nice, but it's not, it's, I mean, it's, I don't know. It's, it can it's be rare in the advertising world. Quite rare. I, was I trying mean, to people say need shoes, nice but, but yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Well, we are going to pretend now that you are in the studio. Right. With a slightly crazed director who wants you to do the same line several times in very many different ways until we work out which one works. <laughs> <laughs> so this is familiar. Quick- <laughs> exactly. This quick fire direction and you'll see down there under, did you see that? Oh, this yeah. One line. Yep. Okay. So I'm going to, yeah, direct you, Mr. Okay. Brum. Sounds good. <clears throat> right. So if you'd like to just give me your best read of, well, give me a read of that and okay. then we'll see what happens. Teammate Sportswear, we've got your back. That was so good. I think we're finished. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> bada bing, bada boom. 
<laughs> one take wonder. Just kidding. No, here we go. Okay, so more natural, please. Teammate Sportswear, we've got your back. A little bit brighter. Teammate Sportswear, we've got your back. Uh, no, I really need to hear hard sell. Teammate Sportswear, we've got your back. That's <laughs> 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 fun. Can we please have uh, emphasis on the product name and the second last word? Teammate Sportswear, we've got your back. Ooh, that's good. Okay, <laughs> like a hypnotherapist. Teammate Sportswear, we've got your back. <laughs> okay, now, like a sergeant major. Teammate Sportswear, we've got your back. Yes, sir. Um, <laughs> like a mushroom, only cheerier. <laughs> right, okay. Teammate Sportswear, we've got your back. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> More saintly, please. Teammate sportswear, we've got your back. Like a newsreader. Teammate sportswear. That does not sound like a newsreader. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, te- I'm terrible. I it did. <laughs> I'm, okay. Teammate sportswear, we've got your back. Yes. Uh, I'm not convinced. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now a bit sweeter. Teammate sportswear, we've got your back. Like a child. Teammate sportswear, we've got your back. Perfect. That sounded like a granny. <laughs> sorry, sorry, director. <laughs> That's all right. Can I now have it? Maximum charm. Teammate sportswear, we've got your back. Oh, my goodness. That was so cool. <laughs> okay, now more like your first read. Teammate sportswear, we've got your back. See, I told you you got it the first time. (laughs) (laughs) It was an important journey, though, we went on. (laughs) It was a very important journey. (laughs) Uh, Too funny. Um, So having been on both sides of the glass, um, what do you think, like, what do you think makes a great voice artist, like from the perspective of a sound engineer, when somebody walks into the booth and you're just... Yeah. Uh, look, it's, I mean, ability to follow direction is, you know, vital, obviously, like, um, as a voiceover, it's hard. You're like, you've walked into the booth and often that's the first time you've seen the script and mostly it's the first time you, you, you do even know what you're voicing. Yeah. So you've got to very quickly enter the world and listen to what the director is saying. And sometimes the audio engineer, if, if they're sort of chiming in. And so the ability to very quickly Take all that direction and just get the read within 70% to 80% of where it needs to be. Yeah, that's really important. And it's, that's really tough. Like, you know, you, you should be expected to muck things up in the first read. But if you don't, you give a pretty good impression as a voiceover artist that you you know what you're doing. Like if you can just read the whole script in one go without stumbling on words and get it really in the ballpark to the point where the director might go, Oh wow, that was a really good read. That's yeah. I think that's your goal as a voiceover artist. If you can do that, it's like, yeah, great. You'll do a hundred other reads, and you know that's all part of the process and needs to be done. But if you can get that first read right, I think it just sort of a, it allays everyone's worries or it boosts their confidence in you and their choice of hiring you. Yeah. Um, but also, it's something I'm really guilty of. And I'm trying to, over the years, I've tried to sort of get it out of my style as a voiceover is, you know, first and foremost, don't 
interject your opinion of a read unless it's asked for, unless the director says, do you think there's anything you could do differently? Yeah. Otherwise, you know, you're a performer. You're there to literally do what the director says and not add too much to it. That's what I think anyway. Like, don't say, well, I think I could do it this way because it just kind of confuses the things, the people in the studio who know this ad a lot better than you, who know the intent. And, yeah, it's something I think I used to do quite a lot and maybe accidentally put in a few times here or there. But um, I try to just kind of do my read and then don't say anything until I'm spoken to. Really good advice, Dan Brum. <laughs> well, I, I don't know advice, if it is. Like, I'm not sure if no, it, it is. is. But it like, is. It, it feels strange because you're almost kind of the the central figure during the thing. Like all eyes are on you. I think you sort of feel like you should be talking sometimes. But I think it's important to just kind of sit back and just let them do their job in there. And they'll tell you if they want something different or they want it read. The second word emphasizes something like they'll tell you. Yeah, um, always. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, it's a matter of just just processing that very quickly and just going on. And there's so many things that kind of are a help and a hindrance. Um, like as a performer, as a voiceover, I, th- I think you you're performing, and there's a lot of insecurities involved. You're putting yourself out there for judgment and critique, and mm. and that's hard. And I think knowing what's happening as the engineer. Like, for example, you know, when, when you're doing a read, the talkback is off and you're in your ears and you do the read. Then they put the talkback on and they give you direction. Though sometimes they leave the talkback off and you can see them all in there talking. Mm-hmm. And it's like I'm sitting there as a voiceover going, I've been the engineer. And they put the, they tell them that to not turn the talkback on because they want to talk shit about the, yeah. <laughs> the voiceover <laughs> artist. And it's paranoid and usually they're not, I'm sure. But often you sit there going, oh, they hate me. <laughs> oh, you have to switch recasting. your brain off and thinking that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and eventually you just you do. It just it's all experience, right? Like you, yeah. oh god, I think back to the first few sessions, and you're just in there going, "Why have they hired me? I'm an, I'm an <laughs> imposter. <laughs> like, what what am I doing here?" But eventually, like, I love it now. Like, you you get in there and you just you close a room around me, and I'm the only one in the room, and you can just be anybody, and you can yeah. kind of. And I think that was an important thing. It's like realizing because i didn't have any acting experience it's realizing that they want you to let yourself go they want you to be whoever you need to be in the read and um they want you to be as kind of outrageous as you need to be or as unoutrageous yeah absolutely and i think it's um some engineers will just have this knack of helping you feel super relaxed the minute you walk into the studio yeah, totally, and, totally. And there's a lot to be said also for, for when you end up being in this business for a while, you you really get to know people. And as that trust builds up with the people that you're working with, your confidence builds with it because, yeah. you know, you just sort of, you walk in there and you go, hi, so nice to see you again, you know, and you already know each other. You've worked with each other on, on loads of things. Yeah, kind of, yeah. That just takes time and experience. But I think if you're starting out in this world, your advice of basically being able to go in there, read the script and give it your best shot always, first read, and then take the direction. That's it. There's there's the job right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it. so much it sounds so much simpler than it really is because like it's such a foreign world. Walking yeah. into a room with a glass window into a room full of clients and then reading a an ad about race cars or shoes or something like that. Like it's such a foreign world and <laughs> I was lucky having the experience in that world as a sound engineer that things were familiar already. So it kind of 
you know, makes you you already kind of know a little bit about how it's going to work. Yeah. Because that's the thing. Like when you open that studio door at the start, you just don't know what you're going to see. It's like, oh, there's a room full of people I've never met in suits. (laughs) Yeah. And you've just got to, yeah, you just got to be there and do it all. You do. In a, like, is there any kind of voiceover work that you have not done a lot of or that you would like to do more of or that you'd particularly just love to try? Yeah, I'd love to voice more documentaries. Um, I did one years and years ago, but like, I don't know, like you watch those mega mechanic shows. (laughs) So that'd be fun, man. Like just talking about big machines and again, a different style of narrating too. Like it's not as commercial and sort of hard sell or soft sell or whatever it's it's more um totally different style of, of talking oh, about things so yeah. i'd love to do that I, I think that'd be um yeah that'd be good fun i'd imagine i've actually in the last few months i've done two world war ii documentaries and awesome being very serious <laughs> and it is super <laughs> serious and you've got to it can get pretty depressing because of what you're yeah, reading right the the shadow of that can follow me into other voiceover work if I'm not really careful. You've got to snap out of it, and I, I yeah. must learn how to do that. But I, it just, I mean, learn how to do it more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but after months of kind of yeah. talking about you get into it. I did a job me. years ago. It was 19, sorry, not 1915. It was 2015 or 16. So it was like the 100-year anniversary of World War One, mm-hmm. And the, uh, the State Library of Queensland did this really wonderful thing where they had all these letters, collections of letters from certain soldiers, and they hired a bunch of voiceover artists to read out and narrate the letters, and they put it on the website. Oh, wow. And it was just like such a like such a privilege reading this letter from this soldier. Yeah. Um, but such a ride it took me on because I hadn't pre-read any of the letters, and it took all day to do these things. And it starts off, you know, he's a young kid that gets drafted over and he's writing home to his parents about how he's, he's arrived in Egypt and he's such strange sights and they walk up the pyramids. And then, wow. you know, he goes into battle and he starts kind of, the letters get a bit more dark. And there's this one great letter where he like, he writes it specifically to his dad and he says, this is what it's like to be in a battle. And he just talks about how just time stands still and then you just sheer adrenaline and you're, you're not even thinking and it's... Most like such a great letter that was so beautifully written and really put you there. And then, you know, like you didn't know where the story was going to go. And he's kind of they're in this major offensive, and they he writes a letter saying, you know, we overcame it all, and things are looking great. We're moving to France next week, and it's all looking up. And that was the last letter, and oh, he he was killed. No. And it was like, like I'm thinking about it now. I'm getting oh, quite God, chilled, no. and yeah. around the time you spend all day in this guy's world voicing this thing, it's. Yes, yeah, tragic. It is as you'd expect, and that side of things when you get their actual experience like that, and there's people were writing letters in those days. That's why they're, they're yeah. such a, they're an incredibly important part yeah, of absolutely. documentaries on any of the wars because otherwise it's it, it's all about battalions, it's all about how many tanks, it's all about, you know all the technical yeah. side of things and the geography and all that kind of stuff. It gives it. The reality. This was yeah. a young man. It's why I can't go to a war memorial without literally bursting into tears. I just can't. <laughs> yeah, totally. You just can't uh, even. Like, there's actually a really good podcast, Hardcore Histories, where it's five parts on World War One, and it's three hours per part, and mm-hmm. it's just the most incredible podcast. The detail he goes into and 
you just like you you know academically that World War One was not much fun. Yeah. But then you listen to this and you're like, holy, t- this was just literally was hell on earth yeah. uh, for years. Yeah. Anyway, we're going very dark. We've gone from Bluey <laughs> to World War Two. I mean, and World War One. This is yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so everybody is getting. Uh, or not everybody, but a lot of people are investing in home studios now in our world. Yeah. Do you have any tips, being that you actually understand this Ugh. side of things? <laughs> understand is uh, is being kind. Look, the acoustic world and kind of audio world, it's it's a really quite a complicated science. Like, yeah. And the most important thing, which I didn't know at the start and a lot of people don't know, is the most important thing is your space. Okay. Um, you can have the you can have a Neumann U eighty seven four thousand dollar mic, um, and if it's not in a good space, it's going to sound terrible. Yeah. And conversely, you can have a roadie. Um, sorry, I shouldn't slag off on roadies, um, but you know they can be cheaper mics, or you can have a really cheap mic, and if you're in a decent booth, it's going to sound great. It'll be fine. So that's the most important thing. And you know, everyone says, "Oh yeah, I'll do my I'll do a home studio in the cupboard." Well, it's not such a good idea, and particularly when you're a, a man like like me with a deep voice, it's terrible because bassy sound waves are really big things. They need room to evolve, and if you're in a confined space, they're just going to bounce straight back into the microphone, and it's this ugly, woolly sound that you can't do anything with with EQ. Like it's really it's, yeah, so. There's you nothing really you can do once get it, out. Yeah, like a really ugly sort of bassy reed and muddy kind of reed in that regard. Like. There's just not much you can do with that, really. So sometimes being in a really confined space isn't great. Yeah, ideal world, you've got a big room that is treated with not just sort of cheap Oralex foam, which does the high frequencies. You've got bass traps, which stop the the bass sounds from going back into the microphone. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's even things like everyone puts the foam in front of them behind the microphone because they think they're talking to that. But the most important thing is to treat behind you because the sound bounces off the wall, hits that back wall, and then goes back into the mic. So if you treat behind you, that can help stop that. Ah. Um, so the actual gear okay. is like the microphone you use, yeah, like it's important and certain mics have certain sounds based on, you know, if you're doing advertising, you might want a Sennheiser 416, which yeah. is kind of this classic advertising mic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've got I've got two of those actually, um, <laughs> and but I'm talking on a Neumann TLM103 now because it it just sounds it's a nice narrator mic, and so you know the, but the mic is important, but you can you know you can get really good mics for not much money, mm-hmm. and if you've got a good space combined with that, like you're in a portable booth or not a portable but a, an actual booth because I mean you sound great. Oh, good. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and it does. It sounds amazing. It's oh, like good. crystal well, clear and it's no noise and it sounds rich and lovely. Yeah. I had a booth made for me, which I love, and it's got yeah. bass traps and ah, okay. And I'm on a Neumann TLM 102. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Which is a beautiful mic and it's yeah. lovely for vocals as well. So Yeah, yeah. I've um, heard actually. So, but I did wonder about getting the Sennheiser four one six because it it is the classic. Yeah, mic. but it I think is. it's it's a pretty. It's not necessarily the best sound, but it's it's the sound you expect to hear with advertising. I think. Um, yeah, and it's not a cheap mic by any stretch, and you can get versions of it. Roadie make some. I'm told very credible kind of emulations of it, which are a little bit cheaper. Mm. 
But I don't know, like if you're getting a lot of advertising work, just kind of think you should probably get a 416. Yeah, they're a pretty gorgeous mic. And that, well, in that, they also come with a fantastic pop shield will cover the foam thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You just sort it's of really pull that out a little pop. bit and it kind of gets you off the mic just enough. Yeah, it, um, it's just, it's, and that's the thing I think with my mic is it's super sensitive. And I've gone through two pop shields <laughs> yeah. to, to try yeah. and find one that actually does stop the the pops because I do like coming in and doing, you know, nice, quiet stuff like this. But yeah. you've got to be super careful to come back off if you're doing a B or a P because. <laughs> yeah. Look, and I, I, this is the first time I've used my 103 in a long time. So I'm, I, I do have a pop shield. So I apologize though if I've. <laughs> I know you have a lot of peas. It sounds you sound. I mean, I haven't noticed any problem, but also it's a beautiful sound. It's lovely and round. Yeah, and, oof, yeah great. Gorgeous. I mean, again, I'm in a, I'm in my studio here at Folklore, and it's really well treated. It's a big room, so it's got space. Uh, the 103 is. It's a really nice microphone. The Neumann 103, um, probably very similar to the 102, I'd imagine. Um, uh, just one better, really. Sort of like turning it up to 11, isn't it? Well, yeah, I, I didn't do too much research. We, we originally bought one of these to record some characters in Bluey. And I just, I think I honestly picked it because I'm like, it's Neumann. Yeah. Uh, it's not as expensive as a U87. And yeah. it's not, it's like, I'm paying that much. It's like $1,500. It's like, it must be a pretty good mic. Yeah. Um, and I know now that you could, you know, I've got an Aston Origin sitting right next to me and it's $500 and whew, God, it would stand up against a U87. It's it's an amazing microphone, huh. British made and it looks great and it's so cheap, but it's this great cardioid um, microphone. Um, it's probably very similar to the one I'm talking on now for literally a third of the price. Uh, who knew? Okay, what's it called again? An Aston? Yeah, Aston Origin. Um, pretty Origin. new company and it's British and they're all made in Britain. And they've cool. got a few microphones, but the Aston Origin is, yeah, it's just a cardioid, I guess, large diaphragm microphone. Uh, and it sounds beautiful. And I, did, I just didn't use it. I bought it and then just it literally sits there. It was my TalkMac mic for a long time. So I was like, that's only 500 bucks. That must not be a very good mic. Uh, but then I, we tried it at one of these mic shootouts we did. And honestly, back to back to a U87, it's like, well, that sounds pretty good. Mm, there <laughs> you go. $4,000 compared to 500 and you sound just as good. Oh, this is so, I'm so glad you told me about this because very often people ask me, what should I get for my mic? And I'm like, well... I splurged, but you don't necessarily have to. Yeah. But then I'm like, what do I suggest? So, Well, yeah, I mean, a podcast I do listen to, which is sort of about the American world, is that everyone thing is about home studios, particularly now with COVID. And so one real consideration is if you're going to be recording from home, engineers maybe might go, well, what gear do you have? And mm-hmm. so if you tell them that you've got a Rode NT1A, which apparently are fantastic microphones, yeah, but they're on the cheaper end of the spectrum- yeah. They might go, uh, that might sound a bit hackish, but if you say you've got a 416 or a U87 ultrafonic booth, there's no questions asked. You know, then it just comes down to your performance, and then it's like the gear is fine. Yeah. Um, and so that's a big cost investment to, to get those things, but if it allays fears and it kind of makes you seem like you've got your SHIT together, mm-hmm. then you know it's kind of worth it. Yeah. No, I'm with you. 
Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what Richie Allen, who designed my booth for me and is a sound engineer, said. <laughs> right. Well, there you go. <laughs> Maybe I know what I'm talking about. Oh, uh, yeah, all. you do. No, he, he was, he, and he also was like, look, if you do this well once, then you're going to be saving yourself money in future. And I was like, yeah, oh. Great advice. Okay, I just, true. I, I didn't follow that for so many years. Like, I originally bought a cheaper version of the 416 and I had a shittier booth. And just the amount of mics I went through over the years of just selling it and getting a slightly better one until I eventually just took the plunge and bought a 416. And it's like, if you just did that at the start, yeah, um, you kind of, it's hard because it's such a cost investment when you're not sure about your business. And it's also, I think with mics, it's possibly a good idea if you possibly can to get one new as opposed to. That can you never be, know what's happened, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. You just don't. And anyway, but I mean, certain so- mics, like I had a, a one of the classic Shure SM7Bs, like the classic microphone, did voiceovers with that for a lot of years and eventually sold it to get my 416, but I sold it for the same price I bought it for. Whoa. Because like it had gone up in value, ah. or gone up in price since then. But it, like it just, they're such in-demand microphones that they don't lose value. And same with the 416. Like you might spend $1,200 on it, but if you want to sell it, you'll probably sell it for a thousand bucks because they're just yeah they, they don't die those things. I, I take <laughs> mine out with me and it you treat it rough, but it's just you know they're pretty hardy microphone. Right, Dan Brum, thank you for all the tips. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Heed my advice at your own peril. At your own maybe. peril. I would like you to now switch gears completely and do the nonsense poetry jam. Yay! <laughs> it's the nonsense poetry jam. All right. And, uh, and so explain I would... the nonsense poetry jam to me. <laughs> okay, so nonsense poetry is exactly nonsense that poetry. nonsense poetry. Right. It's meaningless. And your job, should you choose to take it, is to read it in a way that gives it deep, profound, possibly humorous meaning. <laughs> Dan? Okay. No pressure, mate. No pressure. All so, right. um, I don't know. Would you like to do this as as a character, or do you just want to do it as you in poetry jam mode? I'm well, sure you you have a poetry jam mode. I do not have a poetry jam mode. I've ever explored <laughs> before, but I'll uh, I'll give it a go. Right. Registration. So prior moon, misty gnome of treat, unconfirmed plume. This horizon firing elbow. Breakfast, stripe. Whale stability and varnish, brilliantly stock of quell. Poseidon, my nuanced blip. Argonaut, cashew who? Alhambra. More zero painted wits. Though elves must Wednesday squint. Lop fleece gondola. Pentecostal meme. And eggnog. Trails. Embalm. Oh my God, that was beautiful. <laughs> Dan, you just moved Thank you. me. Thank you. You moved me, mate. <laughs> there you go. Well, look, we've covered so many things. Is there anything that you you would like to just fling in here that you think people might be interested in, like something I didn't talk to you about with Bluey or any of your other work or sound design or anything like that? No, look, I, I think we've we've been on a quite a lovely journey. I, I think, think I hopefully have uh, informed most people of what I do and and that sort of thing. 
Mm -hmm. You have. And it's fascinating. I mean, the... Yeah, the sound design. I was uh, I was looking at your um, Instagram page, and you have quite a few little videos in there of you recording yeah. things and yep. that sort of stuff. It just looks so fun, and I know yeah. that it's full of technical stuff and it's difficult, and you're constantly problem solving. However, <laughs> it just looks like so much yeah, fun. It is. <laughs> well. It's actually a great video that the guys at Ludo made, where it's behind the sounds of Bluey, and it's <gasps> kind of me. Oh, I didn't um, see that. How did I yeah. not know that existed? What? Yeah, I don't know. Google it. Google behind the sounds of Bluey. Oh, um, it'll, it'll probably come no. up. Oh, um, great little short video where I explain what I do and how I do it in a fairly simplified form. It's it's kind of more directed at kids watching the show, but it was lots of fun and it got a really good feedback from lots of people and they really enjoyed it. And I, I think you often don't think about the sound behind shows you just you watch them and you enjoy them you don't necessarily think about how those sounds were created or how they might be helping create meaning in the show and help tell the story so yeah check it out it was a a lot of fun to make i just can't believe i've just interviewed you and haven't watched that that's like really (laughs) yeah geez do your research what kind of i did so much research (laughs) except that bit so behind the sounds of bluey i'm putting i'm going to find the link i'm going to put it in the show notes because that is so cool there's going to be lots of bits and pieces i'll I'll put in the show notes for this including hardcore histories Twenty Thousand hertz (laughs) ben burt foley all of these things i've just written the notes down so this is great so did you bring a piece to read yeah you know what like when you said bring some uh, poetry, I thought I, I, I found some great poems and great song lyrics and I just, I tried to read them and it's like, I just, it sounded too serious okay. and uh, not me. Right. So I'm going old school. Uh-huh. I'm going Banjo Patterson. <gasps> um, awesome. I'm going The Man from Ironbark, which it's just like the greatest bit of writing and it's so funny and it's such a great story. And uh, if I can go a bit longer with a with a poem like that, I'll give it a shot, I suppose. Please. Thank you. Awesome. (laughs) Do it. All right, here we go. It was the man from Ironbark who struck the Sydney town. He wandered over street and park. He wandered up and down. He loitered here, he loitered there, till he was like to drop. Until at last, in sheer despair, he sought a barber's shop. Here, shave my beard and whiskers off. I'll be a man of mark. I'll go and do the Sydney toff up home in Ironbark. The barber man was small and flash, as barbers mostly are. He wore a strikey fancy sash. He smoked a huge cigar. He was a humorist of note and keen at repartee. He laid the odds and kept a tote, whatever that may be. <laughs> and when he saw our friend arrive, he whispered, Here's a lark. Just watch me catch him all alive, this man from Iron Bark. There were some gilded youths that sat along the barber's wall. Their eyes were dull, their heads were flat, they had no brains at all. To them the barber passed the wink, his dexter eyelids shut. I'll make this bloomin' yokel think his bloomin' throat is cut. And as he soaped and rubbed it in, he made a rude remark. I suppose the flats is pretty green up there in Ironbark. A grunt was all reply he got. He shaved the bushman's chin, then made the water boiling hot and dipped the razor in. He raised his hand, his brow grew black. He paused a while to gloat, then slashed the red-hot razor back across his victim's throat. Upon the newly shaven skin, it made a livid mark. No doubt it fairly took him in, the man from Ironbark. He fetched a wild-up country yell, might wake the dead to hear. And though his throat he knew full well was cut from ear to ear, 
He struggled gamely to his feet and faced the murderous foe. You've done for me, you dog. I'm beat. One hit before I go. I only wish I had a knife, you blessed murdering shark. But you'll remember all your life, the man from Iron Bark. And he lifted up his hairy paw and with one tremendous clout, he landed on the barber's jaw and knocked the barber out. And he set to work with tooth and nail. He made the place a wreck. He grabbed the nearest gilded youth and tried to break his neck. And all the while his throat he held to save his vital spark. And murder! Bloody murder! <laughs> yelled the man from Iron Bark. A peeler man who heard the din came in to see the show. He tried to run the bushman in, but he refused to go. And when at last the barber spoke and said, "'Twas all in fun. "'Twas just a little harmless joke, a trifle overdone. "'A joke?' he cried. "'By George, that's fine. "'A lively sort of lark. "'I'd like to catch that murdering swine some night in Ironbark.'" And now while round the shearing floor, the listening shearers gape. He tells the story over and over and brags of his escape. "'Them barber chaps, what keeps a tote? "'By George, I've had enough.'" One tried to cut my bloomin' throat, but thank the Lord it's tough. And whether he's believed or no, there's one thing to remark. That flowing beards are all the go way up in Iron Bark. Oh, that is just so perfect. Oh, it's a great story, right? Isn't it like, brilliant? It's so well told. It's so funny and it's, it's yeah. The imagery is just divine. I love it. And that just took me right back to my childhood. Thank you. Yeah, there you go. I hadn't read it in years. I read to one of my kids and yeah, they, it's just one of those timeless poems that uh, hopefully will always be there. So what what kind of things do you read to your kids? I mean, other than Badger Patterson, but yeah. Uh, lots of kids' books. Yeah. Um, usually they'll, they'll latch onto a favourite, like Where's the Green Sheep? Yeah. And you just end up reading that same book. <laughs> I don't know. But there's the Bluey books now and, like, they're yeah. really beautifully drawn and it's kind of a retelling of the episode but it adds almost like a philosophical sort of bent to it and it kind of very interestingly written and they're beautiful books to read the kids. So it's um, that's kind of – and they love it because they love Bluey so they, they want the books to be read as well. How old are your kids? I've got two girls who are eight or will be eight and six in next month and then a little boy called Jack who's – two in November. Oh my goodness. That's just the perfect ages for this. Oh. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not all the time. Perfect ages for Bluey. Oh yeah, for Bluey. Oh yeah, <laughs> sorry, yeah. It's it's a tough age as a parent, but no, yeah, they they love the show and I'll finish the sound design on an episode and kind of go home and show it to my kids and yeah, they love it because they see the episode and it's good to see kids watching this episode and seeing what makes them laugh and maybe what doesn't as well. And that's your target audience. It's it's a good <laughs> test for you. One of my favourite things about Bluey is actually the sound of the kids laughing. You know, yeah, when, yeah. when Bluey and Bingo are laughing, it's just cutest, tinkly little yeah. divine thing. I love it. It's so, like, it's sincere. I think oh, that's what a lot of it is. Yeah. Like, we haven't used many kid actors, um, mm -hmm. and so they just sound raw and natural, and it just gives it all this sincerity. Like, they're saying lines that kids would say, and they're saying them how kids would say them. No, it doesn't sound actory at all. It just sounds real. Utterly real. Uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show, Dan Brum. Thank you. Yeah, that's been great. Great to <laughs> chat to you. Yeah, I'll be binging more Bluey because I still have a <laughs> way to go. I think I've watched maybe a dozen episodes, so I have no idea. That's like okay, the well, iceberg. My favourite's the best to watch. Okay, um, yeah. Bumpy and the Wise Old Wolfhound is uh, just an amazingly funny and really 
quite emotional episode. Oh, okay. Um, it's in a subtle way that's not hitting you over the head. Sleepy Time is like, it's got to be like the greatest piece of television ever made, <laughs> which is a bold claim, but like you watch it and it's just incredible. Army is just so great and I love squash because I'm in it. I kind of wrote part of it. Uh -huh. It's based on the life of me trying to beat my brother at squash, which didn't happen. And it's a really funny episode. And from a sound design point of view, it was like creating the sounds of a game of squash was just oh, yeah. like, as good as it gets, like recording in a squash court and then trying to make it sound like they were playing a game of squash. There's lots of fun as a sound design thing and hopefully it is convincing my work in it. But it's a great episode too and it's really funny and it's it's funny enough, that was the next one up that I'm I was about to watch. Oh, so there you go. yeah, there you go. It's perfect. Yeah, good Uncle Stripe episode actually. Yeah. Excellent. All righty. Well, just wishing you well and thank you. Thank you and yeah, your brother you. and the whole team for making Bluey. And thank <laughs> yeah. you for coming on the show and talking about it, Dan. No, thank no, you. Thanks for having me. It's been, it's been a great chat. <laughs> All right. Bye for now. See you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to Voice Over Voices. Scripts and concept by Kathy Ogden. Music produced by Grant Windsor and written by Jeff Franzel and Kathy Ogden. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Voice Over Voices Podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe so more people can find us. Be kind. Thank you. <laughs>